Welcome to It's All Good. This is a podcast all about well-being and mental health. Every episode, I have a new guest join me to share personal stories and give ways to take care of health and well-being. I'm Lauren, and today I'm joined by one of my old professors, Dr. Benjamin Chung. He is a faculty member in the Department of Psychology at UBC. I had the privilege of taking his course in fourth year and getting to know him, so I'm super excited to have him as my guest today. In this episode, we talk about how to support university students' health and wellness from a faculty perspective, how Ben promotes social connection inside and outside the classroom, and the role culture plays in instilling belonging and community. We'll also discuss how to better support racialized students on campus and discuss the cultural barriers that deter them from accessing mental health services. So before we started uh, the podcast, we were talking about the first time you met Santa Ono, the president <laughs> of our school. Yeah, the first time I well, the first time I ever had an actual conversation with him. Um, I don't even know it was a conversation, and probably never <laughs> even registered in his memory that this that this incident happened. Uh, so this was actually, I think, probably last year. I want to say last August in. During the Powell Street Festival, mm-hmm. uh, my wife and I were wandering around the festival. We were eating, we were just looking at stuff, and then we saw uh, Santa Ono and his wife uh, walking down the street as well. He's very popular, even in the in, even in the festival as well. People were taking pictures with him. He was mm-hmm. taking pictures with other people. There was there was always a crowd, sort of a small crowd surrounding him. And I thought, oh, my God, oh, my God, it's, it's Santa Ono. And I had been trying to get in touch with him for a while. Uh, mm-hmm. And my wife said, oh, this is the perfect opportunity. You should take a photo with him. You, you know, you can get him to help you advertise for bagels with Ben and stuff mm-hmm. like that. And I thought, okay, yeah, you know what, I'm, I'm going to do it. So I went up to him and I said, uh, hi, Dr. Ono, I'm a faculty at the Department of Psychology, and uh, I'm the bagels guy, kind of, I kind of got and tried, tried to contact you a couple of times before about this, and then uh, he said, oh, hi, nice to meet you, you know, those, the kind of... Um, pleasantries. The pleasantries, <laughs> that's right. And then uh, my wife said, oh, can, would you mind if uh, you two took a picture together? And he said, no, of course not. So I said, can we do this? And so we made like a, like a bagel-shaped um, mm-hmm. gesture with our hands. Uh, and I said, Let, let's do this for, you know, bagels with Ben. And uh, I'm, we'll get to what bagels with Ben is later mm-hmm. on anyway. But uh, he said, sure. So we did the thing. We, we did the, the hand gesture. And then we took the picture. And then I tweeted about it afterwards and i thought aha look santa and i uh talking about bagels with ben and stuff and afterwards we had a conversation about uh him wanting to come to this department of psychology take a look and all that stuff uh and then one of my former students monse she replied to that tweet to the picture that i tweeted laughing and she said I don't think he had any idea what was happening because he, uh, because she then uh, attached the picture that he posted on his Instagram feed with a caption saying something like, "I don't know what the student was hoping to, uh, to, to was hoping to do, but he seemed to have really enjoyed his time." And so I thought, "Oh man." He thought I was a student the whole time. <laughs> I specifically remembered I introduced myself as I'm faculty from the department of univer- from the department of psychology, but I assume he probably misheard and thought I was from the faculty of psychology. I don't know. Mm. But yeah, that afterwards my uh, uh I was heartbroken <laughs> obviously. Mm-hmm. Uh but you know, one of these days I'm going to be able to connect with Santa Ono. Uh, and he's going to he's going to remember who I am. He's going to know what. Uh, okay, that sounds really like like a threat, not intended to be a threat <laughs> a at all. Bit. 
But at some point, he's going. I'm I'm actually going to be able to take a picture with him where he uh, he knows what's actually happening. He knows what bagels with Ben is and mm-hmm. all that stuff. So, yeah, that yeah that that was my both. That was my my f- only interaction with Santa during which uh, we've taken during which we had an actual full on conversation. Mm-hmm. And it didn't end nearly as well as I thought it would have. Mm-hmm. That's okay. I'm sorry you had that experience. Oh, that's okay. <laughs> I, 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 he meets a lot of people. He definitely probably met a lot of people on that day in particular. So mm. understandable. So I made myself feel better afterwards. <laughs> uh, uh, after after my, my students showed me what happened, I made myself feel a little better by getting some ice cream. So that's okay. Yeah. I'm, I'm glad that that helped. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, maybe he's listening to the podcast. Yeah, uh, doctor. Fan. Yeah, doctor Ono. <laughs> thanks so much for listening to to, to this story. Uh, you're mm-hmm. great guy. I'm a huge fan. Oh yeah. Uh, let's. Uh, I'm gonna get you to hopefully come out to Bagels with Ben at some point. Hmm. I think it, it it's gonna happen one day. Yeah. Okay. Maybe not soon, but one day. Okay. One day. <laughs> I'll, I'll be here. I'll be here. Awesome. Okay. <laughs> Thank you for sharing that story. No, thanks. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm sure it's painful to relive it, right? Oh, yeah, it is. <laughs> that embarrassment, the moment that Monsi uh, sent me that reply, that embarrassment, I, I relive it every now and then <laughs> and just go, oh, man. Like, there's, if someone read my tweet first and then read his Instagram <laughs> mm-hmm. post right after, I would come off sounding like uh, an idiot fanboy. So. Yeah. <laughs> and that's okay. He has a lot of fans. He's a celebrity on campus. Yeah. And I'm sure there are people that commented on his picture saying, oh, this is actually a prof, not a student. Yeah, I don't know. Actually, I don't actually know. I I am going now that now that you're making me think of this, <laughs> I'm going after we're after we're done this, I'm going to go and look up his Instagram page from like a year ago or mm-hmm. from his Instagram feed from a year ago and try to see if anyone said anything about it. We'll see what happens. Yeah, keep me informed. I will. The story just keeps I developing. Will. I know, I know. It's a, it's a Hollywood movie in the making. <laughs> oh yeah. All right. Okay. Thank you for sharing that. No problem. So, Ben, what are we talking about today? What are we talking about today? Uh, we're talking about mental health. We're talking about mental health in the classroom. We're talking about mental health at the university. Yes. Yeah. Basically. Yeah. Right. So. So what do you think your role is on campus in terms of supporting students? Ooh, my role on campus in terms of supporting students is uh, there, there's, there's multiple aspects of it. Um, it is try to you know, make things in terms, of, uh, in terms of administration, make things as easy for students to get through a course as possible. But beyond that, it's providing support for students um, in whatever capacity I can uh, when they need help outside of the classroom. And I, I do have a lot of students who come to my office, uh, whether it's during office hours or outside of office hours, asking for advice, asking for help, asking for some sort of support with a variety of issues that they're dealing with outside of the class. Certainly, giving them support and advice for the class and uh, for the course that they're taking that they're taking with me, but also for a variety of issues like uh, family issues, mental health issues, and often those are very much interlinked with each other. So, yeah, I see myself trying to, you know, my role as trying to support students both within the classroom and outside of the classroom as well. Right. Thank you. And... Did you anticipate that you would take on this role when you first started becoming a prof? No. Yeah. <laughs> no, not at all. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I think that, that I, I will say that that lack of anticipation on my part probably comes from the fact that I, I've, been, I've, been really, I've been really lucky when I was an undergrad to have had really great faculty members, to have had really great profs 
teaching me, and so I didn't have to worry too much about what it's like to have a prof that I really didn't enjoy taking a course with, or that made the course really difficult for me to 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 stay in, and also lucky in terms of my not having had to deal with a lot of issues in my life uh, while I was an undergrad that would have served as you know major distractions uh, when I uh, while I'm trying to study uh, while I'm trying to do work while I'm trying to you know study for an exam or you know anything like that so I definitely didn't anticipate that I would have all this additional kind of responsibility tacked onto my job which is ostensibly simply just to teach mm-hmm. uh, and in if and if I've wanted to do a bit of research and other kinds of um, educational roles as well, but yeah, I, I definitely didn't go into this thinking that I would serve in such a st- large supportive capacity, um, and it really wasn't until I had I started teaching while when I was in graduate school that I realized how much more than teaching there is to to teaching to being a um uh, an instructor mm-hmm. yeah right like it's not just the lecturing aspect which we might think is the main role but it's also supporting your students and making it or making lectures conducive to like meeting new people and things like that yeah you know i uh, the teaching part of it is definitely still the the part that takes up the most time so mm-hmm. when i'm thinking about you know my 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 upcoming year right from september to august essentially right what am i spending the most amount of time doing it's going mm-hmm. to be teaching it's going to be you know an hour per class and i teach seven courses over the course of 12 months right so it's all those hours every week plus the prep time plus you know the reading um to make sure that my my content knowledge even is up to date and mm-hmm. trying to change up things in the classroom to make it more interesting to make the uh, to to facilitate conveyance of the material in the classroom and you know updating my memes and stuff like that in in my in my lectures so a lot of that takes a lot of time um but i think the more i do this the more i recognize and i'm sure i don't have a full recognition of this either because i don't keep track of my hours that well but i but certainly the more i recognize how much time it also takes in addition to my teaching, to support students, um, especially to support students' well-being, I I, I, th- I think part of it is, uh, and and a lot of this really came about as a function of stuff that I started doing l- last year. Time is starting to blur together for me. Um, when I started getting involved with the Asian Canadian and Asian Migration Program. It's a relatively new minor program in uh, or minor studies program at UBC. It's five years old as of this previous academic year, um, and it's directed by uh, a, a great professor. Um, his name is Chris Lee in the English department, and. And and it was through that work and also through my work with the wellness center with people like Patty Hambler and, and, and Diana Jung that I've started to take on not just well-being, but to, to take on a role where I'm looking at well-being, not just as a concept um, on its own, but how do I look at well-being and how do I support well-being from a racialized perspective, given the sheer volume of racialized students that attend UBC and given the volume of racialized students who do psychology as their major, who, who take psychology as their, pro, as their program of study. Um, and so I think uh, because of my connections to both of those important hubs that 
both and, and both of them focus a lot on mental well-being and mental health and mental illness. I think um, I, I've I've come to do a lot, but I think it's really um, out of out of my connections with with both of those important programs on campus. Mm-hmm. And before this, we were talking about a program that you're working on. In uh, in the Department of Psychology, uh, we 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 recognize that there are a a lot of international students on on campus and international students in our department in particular. We know that international student enrollment has gone up uh, quite dramatically over the last ten years at UBC. And uh, last I heard, several years ago anyway, uh, psychology was and maybe still is one of the more popular programs among um, international students. But with that massive increase in international student, um, in in terms of the the, the student body um, of international students, there's 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 concern about whether or not uh, there's a sufficient there's sufficient mental health support for international students, especially since you know not all especially racialized students and not all racialized students have the same kind of cultural background. Not all racialized students have the same kind of cultural experience and 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 you know cultural assumptions and so when they come here there is a particular need for racialized students and especially international students who have additional sets of challenges like they're so far away from their home communities they're so far away from their families and they have to deal with a new system of finances maybe a new system of education maybe have to make completely new circles of friends right all of these things they have to figure out how to manage and certainly if they did the jumpstart program you know, Jumpstart will put some resources into helping them figure out, you know, how to how to get medical insurance, how to set up a bank account, and all of that. But you know, not everyone is able to attend. Not everyone wants to or can attend. And so, and 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 so, uh, there are a lot of international students who need additional support, and especially in the realm of mental health, because this, if you're so far away from your family, you're so far away from the friends that you've known for the longest time and belonging a sense of belonging and a sense of connectedness is such an important part of mental well-being then that's a concern right that 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 potential disconnection is a huge concern for us so what we're trying to do is to try to we're going to spend this coming upcoming year with a student called uh, Davin to try to to, to plan for a peer mentorship program that is geared towards international students where we do our best to do some sort of cultural matching uh, to allow students to receive mentorship uh, from a student who is coming from a culturally similar background, as similar as possible. Of course, we can't match to like city of birth necessarily, but uh, we'll, we'll do the best that we can um, with what and what is reasonable given our resources and given the available uh, the availability of mentors mm-hmm. uh, who who want to be mentors in the first place. And hopefully, by creating those kinds of mentorship relationships, then we are able to create an environment that facilitates international students to get the hang of being a UBC student, being a university student in Vancouver, in Canada, a little more easily than if they were sort of just thrown into this kind of uh, this kind of environment and told, you know, this is now university, you are a university student, we have all these resources, and now go, mm-hmm. right? So that's that's certainly the plan. Um, we, we were still in the planning phase right now just to figure out what our program objectives are going to be, how we can evaluate the program, what kinds of expectations we have, what kinds of results we, in, we, we hope to see. Um, and the logistics of this program. 
So we're, we're, we have a long way to go before we can actually push out the program, but that's, that's one thing that we're hoping to do for um, especially the international students in our, um, in, in our department for the time being. Right. And yeah. is this a, like an ongoing mentorship thing? Like you'd meet several times throughout the year? Yeah, that's right. This is going to be hopefully an ongoing mentorship process throughout one year, at least as far as we can see at the moment. Um, and this way it allows the students, the mentees, to build some sort of consistent, reliable relationship with a particular mentor. Mm-hmm. Um, and they'll also be able to meet in a group with other mentees as well, and they get to share their own experiences, right? And I think it's important for students to have these kind of these kinds of spaces. And the university itself is already a space that allows people to mix and mingle and, and such. But I think it's also helpful for people to have this kind of space to talk to other people who have similar experiences to. Uh, share their similar experiences, whether they want to celebrate their mutual experiences or to commiserate over their shared experiences, whatever the case might be. I think it's important for people to have these kinds of these kinds of spaces for mm-hmm. for them to to chat and to meet and to to share. Right. You're seeing how social connection is such a big part about mental health, especially on a campus where there's so many students. Mm-hmm. So easy to feel isolated. Yeah. And I think what's really unique about this program is. The cultural aspect, Mm because culture is such a big part of, well, for some people, it's a big part of their identity. And being able to relate to someone that has a similar culture, similar practices that can really help other people feel connected. Yeah, uh, I think culture is one of those things where uh, we don't think about we, we often don't think about or at least many people don't often think about culture because it's sort of like fish don't think about water just because it's sort of mm. all around them, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, that's that's something that uh, Dr. Stephen Heine, culture psychologist in, in our department and a former grad student that used to work with us who um, is now on to bigger and better things, uh, Macha Chudek or Hudek, uh, they, they used to talk about culture in a very similar way, right? It's sort of the air around us, and we, we don't often recognize the fact that we are surrounded by culture, especially those whose culture is the default culture. There's really nothing to think about. But it is, it's, it's there, right, from the way that we talk, from the accents that we have, whether we speak with a Pacific Northwest accent, whether we speak with a South Asian accent, with a Hindu accent, or with a Farsi accent, or Cantonese accent, whatever the case might be, we all, we all have, we all embody some form of culture in some way, shape, or form, and, uh, and, and, you know, it's, 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 uh, it can be a scary thing for someone who's especially in uh, with a cultural minority to step out into that cultural majority space. And you know, everyone is going to ultimately be forced to uh, and compelled to mix and mingle in this kind of multicultural environment. Um, but it can be very exhausting if people have to do what we call code switching, where they, you know, go from one cultural being to another cultural being in a different context. And this is something that, you know, cultural minorities often have to do in order to be respected, in order to be seen as being competent in um, in, in, in the eyes of mainstream society. And this is also why sometimes people speak with different accents in, in different contexts, right? They might speak with very, quote-unquote, proper, uh, like, mainstream, I guess, uh, Pacific West Coast accent if they're in Vancouver. Uh, but back with their families and back with their friends who with whom they share a cultural background, they might speak in a slightly different accent. Um, yeah, so I think having this kind of, uh, having this kind of, of, of cultural, of, of culturally matched space, I think would be, uh, hope is a welcome, uh, addition to this kind of, to, to the kind of mentorship program that many other people will see. Mm-hmm. And especially cause you get to talk to another peer, which mm-hmm. is less intimidating than 
talking to a counselor, for example. Yeah, there's certainly a space for talking to counselors. And, you know, I'm not saying that our peer mentors are going to be able to replace uh, counselors because that's not what they're being trained for. But there is something to be said about speaking with peers and opening up yourself to peers. And I think that's why it's so important to have something like the Kaleidoscope on campus, the peer-driven mental health support group, and also why it's so important to have wellness peers and wellness advisors. Is that what the term is? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, In the wellness center, because that kind of that kind of interaction context makes it so much at least makes it appear to be so much uh, more low stakes, so much more casual and so much uh, less formal that makes people more comfortable to share and to divulge uh, whatever information might be helpful for. You know, helping them get things off their chest and deal with the problems at hand. Right. Thank you. We talked a lot about social connection, and you mentioned several times Bagels with Ben. <laughs> so for people that don't know what that is, do you want to talk about what that is? Sure. So Bagels with Ben, uh, I'll talk a bit about what it looks like, and then I'll talk a bit about how it even came to be. So Bagels with Ben is essentially something that I do once a week with each of my classes, with each class that I, each course that I teach. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it's, it's one hour a week. It's completely optional. It's not mandatory at all for students. And it's a time when I bring bagels. I bring whatever spread I can put together. And then students bring themselves. And it's a space in which we can just sit around, hang out, chat, eat bagels with, uh, with each other, share bagels with each other, and just talk about all sorts of things. Talk about whatever students want to talk about. It can be course-related, but most of the time it is not course-related. We've talked about something as serious as... Iranian politics um, during uh, one of the more recent uh, uh, youth-led revolutions. And we've talked about the history of religious, uh, sorry, of of Korean religion Mm. and Korean religions uh, on on the peninsula. All the way to things that are a little sillier, uh, that are things a little more silly, like favorite Japanese restaurant in Vancouver. And I will say most conversations end up devolving into uh, favorite or recommended restaurants of whatever kind of cuisine we're talking about at the time. Mm. But yeah, it's just, it's just something that we do for fun. And I really wanted to do something like that because, you know, psychology is such a big major, so much so that it takes up two and a half convocation ceremonies Mm -hmm. in May and so being a person who also studied psychology at UBC I I'm very familiar with how anonymous that kind of this large program can feel Mm -hmm. and the social isolation that that might also uh, create as well And so I wanted to create this really as a way for students to get together, for students to connect with each other. This way I get to meet these students. I get to know more about the students who are in my classroom. Mm -hmm. Students get to know more about who I am. And students get to know more about who other people are and who each other might be. And I think one of the happy, one of the things that have made me the happiest about hosting these Spagos with Ben sessions is to know that people have made friends with each other through the course of repeatedly coming to Bagels with Ben, mm-hmm. um, to the so to the point where they might have come a few times, they didn't strike up a friendship, and then they might have run into each other at a party, and then they go, "Oh, I recognize you. You were at Bagels," mm-hmm. and then they start striking up a conversation over that mutual experience. Mm-hmm. Um, one of these days, someone is going to strike up a romantic relationship in Bagels with Ben. I'm just waiting for that to happen, and then I'm going to specifically request for a wedding invitation. Oh, yeah. Yeah. 
That, that's gonna, that's gonna be a must. How do you but, know it hasn't happened? Uh, yeah, that's a good point. I don't know that it hasn't happened, but I feel like, I feel like that story would have come up at some point, mm. um, and they probably would have come back to me saying and joking about how it was so funny that they first met uh, while sharing, uh, while sharing a bagel smothered in marmite. I don't know. Um, <laughs> But that's that's certainly uh, the, the kind of personal connection is mm-hmm. what I'm really hoping to establish with uh, with hosting these kinds of sessions. And this really came about because, or I got this idea because when I was in grad school, I was taking a graduate seminar from Dr. Catherine Ron, who is still teaching in our Department of Psychology right now. And uh, one of the things that she talked about was how someone did something similar. Also, bagels with Ben. I think there was bagels with Ben as well. I think the guy's name was also Ben. Mm-hmm. I can't remember anymore. And, you know, originally I thought, you know, I don't want to be a copycat. I want to do something that's a little more original. So what else starts with Ben? And I couldn't do, like, I didn't want to do bananas with Ben because that was kind of lame. Mm. I couldn't really do brunch with Ben because sometimes it happens at 11, sometimes it happens at like 4. Mm. And that is definitely not brunch time. Uh, and I thought you know, maybe baguettes with Ben. But then baguettes are also really unwieldy and I didn't want to be lugging around giant baguettes on my way to to, to UBC. So I settled with, uh, I just went with bagels. Mm. Um, bit the bullet and just went with bagels <laughs> cause, just because uh, bagels are just such a good generic item mm. that people can share, mm. that most people will hopefully enjoy, and a lot of different options that you can have at different times of the day, whatever. So... Yeah, so then I ended up settling with um, Bagels with Ben. And now it's sort of something that's taken off on its own, where sometimes people will bring their friends over. And um, actually my cousin, who is visiting from Waterloo, has dropped by as well to one of those sessions. And sometimes people will even request to have you know extra sessions in the summer. And so um, I've been trying to fulfill those requests. Sometimes people who have left my class, no longer in my class, still continue to attend my bagel sessions, such as yourself. Mm-hmm. Uh, still, uh, still, sometimes even ask, you know, when are you having them this term? Can I drop by? Is that okay? Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm, it's, always, uh, it's always a nice thing to know that people enjoyed it so much that they want to keep coming back. That's the whole idea is to have people connect with other students. And if they want to come back, looks like they're connecting. Yeah. And, you know, I, one of the things I'm, and I'm certainly not trying to put any pressure on you in, in the future as either, but uh, it's really fun when students bring their own stuff as well. Uh, I, I've had students who've brought their own fruit platters and fruit trays. They mm-hmm. made homemade hummus and they made, they brought tzatziki sauce. They, um, some, another student uh, from Turkey had brought buns that she had made before mm-hmm. uh, and it had feta cheese in it. And I normally, normally don't like to eat feta cheese, mm-hmm. but these are so good. I couldn't <laughs> stop eating them. Um, the student felt really bad afterwards because I told her that I don't usually like feta cheese, but honestly, Mm -hmm. they were so good. I wanted to ask for a recipe. Actually, I did ask for a recipe and I haven't gotten it yet. So (laughs) at some point I'm going to, I'm going to bug her again for, for a recipe. But you know, it's, it's, I, I just think it's, it's, it's fun when people contribute as well. It's fun when people participate such, so actively that they actually bring their own contributions as well. Mm -hmm. I really enjoy, I've really enjoyed especially the, the uh, foods that people bring that represent their own cultures. Because mm-hmm. uh, you're right, they often are conversation starters. And I think it's great to be in that kind of context in which people are able to share experiences and share the culture experiences over food, mm-hmm. um, which I think is such a great vehicle for for communication. Um, and I think one thing that I really appreciate about these sessions is uh, over time how multicultural 
they are. So when I had one in the summer, if not for people being busy, I would have had such great diverse representation uh, at that table. And I think that's a really that would have been a really really good, almost like a microcosm of the university. Of the kind of multiculturalism that I would like to see more mm-hmm. of, right? Yeah, and what I like most is that like everyone is involved. Mm-hmm. Like it's a conversation. Like everyone sitting in a circle. It's not mm-hmm. you just show up and try yeah. to talk to people because that can be in- intimidating. Yeah, I've I've been in plenty of those situations myself where I'm sort <laughs> of just thrown into a meeting, and so I just have to. F- and I'm also a very anxious person as well when it comes to meeting new people. People mm-hmm. think because I'm teaching, because I teach in front of thousands of students every year that I'm really extrovert. I'm really not. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I'm really introverted. I, I'm very scared to talk to people. I'm very nervous about talking and meeting new people. And so um, it's, it's, a, it's a very anxiety-provoking experience when I'm when I, that would be a very anxiety-provoking experience if I were to be asked to, you know, come to this session with people and then just chat. And so instead I try to have it started off a little more structured. Um, so you would know this. Usually what happens is we do round of introductions where it's name, year in the program, and what program we're doing or we're studying. And there's always some random question that I ask people. Right. And every week I try to change it up a little because sometimes I have the same people showing up week after week. And I um, for for their sake, I don't want them to have to keep saying the same thing again and again. And it would be things like, you know, if you weren't in university and you didn't have to worry about money or survival or whatever, what would you do? Mm. Right. Or it would be things like um, if uh, you had a superpower other than invisibility and the ability to fly because that's everyone. Mm-hmm. Uh, what kind of superpower would you want and why, right? So getting getting beyond uh, just the superficial, hi, my name is blank and such and such. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and doing something that's a little more silly, a little more fun because I think people, when people act silly, uh, is when people start breaking down their own little barriers when they talk to people. And there's no right answer. There's no wrong answer. It's your answer. Your answer is right for you. Mm-hmm. And so when people can share on that kind of level playing field, I think it makes that kind of connection, bridging connections so much easier. Mm-hmm. So we talked about... Uh, social connection outside of classroom. But I'm curious, how do you facilitate social connection within your classroom? Yeah, that's a lot harder. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing that one thing that I try to do, actually, is... Um, so I'll, t- I'll talk about a couple of things here. One thing is I, I have these pre-course meetups where mm-hmm. before the course starts in September or in... May, and I usually can't do this for a course that starts in January because I don't have time. Uh, But before a course that starts in term one of winter or term one in the summer, I usually get people, I invite people to come to the department. We'll have very informal meeting. I'll bring food and drinks that no one ever eats or drinks. Um, Yeah, I don't know. I think people (laughs) might be feeling a little shy when they're meeting other people for the first time, even though they're like right there. And I'm just like, please eat something. Please drink something because I can't finish three bags of brownies by myself. Oh, I would never say no to free food. And next time I teach, I have one of those meetings, I'll ask you to come. Alright. So when I I have these sessions, it's really, it's sort of like a a toned down version of Bagels with Ben, except Mm -hmm. that's where I also ask them, you know, do you have any questions about the course do you have any Mm -hmm. concerns or worries about the course and anything I can address for you at the moment but it's also a way for people to meet each other get to know each other and you know through these kinds of meetings people have learned that oh hey you're also doing a visual arts degree let's hang out Mm -hmm. and um, there have been multiple occasions where people who met during those pre-course meetup sessions end up sitting together in class because Mm -hmm. going to class 
there's like 150 seats, let's say, or 220 seats, and you can pick any one of them. But people often end up picking specific ones because, oh, I usually sit here. Maybe people don't have that kind of system, and they're just like, oh, I just want to sit by myself. But it's so much easier to make that decision when you know someone who's in the class. And so I've I've seen multiple occasions where people who met during those pre-course meetups end up sitting together during the class, and hopefully that helps them build uh, build social connections that way. And also, uh, I try to have these little what we call think, pair, and share uh, activities in class where I ask a question and you know people think about the answer for a second and they can share with their partners and over time once they keep sharing with the same partner I think they start recognizing each other and they start feeling more comfortable talking to each other hopefully mm-hmm. uh, and hopefully that also fosters some form of social connection as well mm-hmm. um, uh, so that's social connections between students I try to do what I can to foster social connections between myself and the students where I I try to I try to make a conversation with a new student especially students sitting in the front row every class. But like I said, I'm I'm a very I'm actually very introverted and I get very anxious talking to people, so it's a it's a challenge for me. Mm-hmm. Um and I've never met my goal of talking to a new student every class. Uh, but it's, it's one that I, that I work on, that I'm still working on right now. That's, yeah, that's another thing that I try to do to create social connections in class. Mm-hmm. And it takes a lot of courage to, to talk to a new student. It's scary. Um, mm-hmm. yeah. uh, because I, I've all, I've, I've grown up in this cultural environment where there's such a strong emphasis on having to please people, on having to... Uh, you know, not embarrass yourself because everything I did was embarrassing for my parents in Hong Kong when I where I, when I was growing up there. Mm-hmm. Um, and so growing up, it was always, you know, don't do this, otherwise I'm going to embarrass myself. Don't do that, otherwise I'm going to look stupid or look foolish and I'm going to bring shame to my parents or something like that. And um, I've sort of internalized that over time. And so it's it's often a struggle when I talk to even a student, right, uh, where presumably it should be an easy time for me to just, you know, talk to a student. Often students are terrified of talking to faculty members. Mm-hmm. So why would that, why would this kind of interaction scare me in the first place? But it's just, it's hard to get out of your own head when you've been internalizing that kind of mentality of don't embarrass yourself or you don't want to sound stupid mm-hmm. um, for so long. Uh, so it's it's something that I still work on that I still have to work on. Right. Thank you for that. Yeah. Yeah, great. So what other things do you do besides talking to students in class um, to help better support your students? Um, so there's a few things I, a few other things that I try to do as well. So on my syllabus, uh, I provide, so my syllabi are now all completely fully online, uh, as, as web pages. And so on those syllabus pages, I make sure to include resources that are relevant for, um, supporting students, mental health, uh, mental well-being. It's things like the kaleidoscope, making sure that people are aware of what the kaleidoscope is. It's mm-hmm. things like um, UBC counseling services. It's things like accessibility, if people might not be aware of accessibility as a service. Um, so that's a really big thing. Uh, another another thing that I do is, uh, especially around the middle of the term, when it's in first term, because there's no midterm break in term one in the winter, mm-hmm. But I try to do this with every term that I teach. Uh, around the middle of the term, I'll send an email out to students just to do like a mental health check-in to make sure that everyone is doing okay because um, that's around the time when morale goes down, midterms are crushing students, there's like an endless wave after wave after wave of midterm exams that people are dealing with, and assignments and essays and all of that. So I'm trying to send this email just to make sure that 
people are keeping their heads above the water, making sure that if they do feel like they need support, they know that they can come and talk to me for support. Mm -hmm. And almost every term that I send that email, either later that day or later that week, I will get an email from a student who will say, thanks for sending that email. I think I need to talk to someone or, you know, I've been hoping that I can deal with this on my own, but I don't think I can. I think I need some help. Hey everyone, this is Lauren from the future inserting this clip. I just want to give a quick disclaimer before we continue with this episode. Ben is going to share a story that involves the passing of one of his students due to suicide. If you feel like this might bring up things for you, I encourage you to skip ahead to around the 53 minute mark. And if you're dealing with suicidal thoughts or know someone who is, I encourage you to seek support through the crisis line, which is linked in the description of this episode, or seek professional services. Okay, let's get back to it. And I started doing that uh, because I started sending that email because a couple of years ago, one of the the students that I was teaching, one of the students in my class, uh, died by suicide, and... Um, and it was, I I found out about that, about what happened several days later from uh, several of the students' group members in my class. Um, and after that, I thought, you know, I, I, I don't want to, I don't, I don't want to see another student fall through the crack, uh, fall through the cracks. And so I thought, you know, I think it's time for me to send an email to all the students just to make sure that everyone's doing okay, you know, especially that group of students who were working with the student, uh, that they were doing okay. And that just became a thing that I just, I, I just kept doing um, mm-hmm. because I've, I've always felt a little... So after I found out what happened... Uh, I was talking to other people about the student, about what had happened, and obviously it was always, obviously there was nothing that I could have done, Mm -hmm. really, because if the student's friends had no idea, there was very little chance that I could have seen anything coming to have been able to do anything about it. And so, of course, the the reasonable advice um, and response that people gave me was, you know, it's not your fault. Uh, But that certainly didn't stop me from feeling guilty either because I always felt like maybe I should have done more. Maybe I could have done more. And, you know, that student used to sit in the front row and it was always, it had been at that time my goal to speak to a new person in the front row every class and uh, because of my own anxieties I wasn't always able to do that and I had thought about talking to that student multiple times but I hadn't been able to overcome my own anxieties and insecurities at the time and so I always thought back to my thought thought back to 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 what happened with that student and thinking you know what if what if I had made a connection? What if I had established communication? What if we had talked? Would anything have been different? Um, and it's sort of one of those things where cognitively I know that it probably wouldn't have made a huge difference. But you know, emotionally and affectively, it's that kind of guilt doesn't really go away and hasn't really gone away. Uh, and I'm I'm sort of hope, trying to use that as motivation for me to just try to push past my anxieties in the future as I try to talk to more students and establish more connections with more students because ultimately I don't want to I don't want to find myself and find other students in a situation where something could have been done maybe um maybe my talking 
might have been able to create enough of a connection with the student that um, they would be willing to talk to me about this kind of stuff. Um, and then I'd be able to refer them to appropriate resources. Who knows? So that's, that's certainly one thing that I, I keep in my mind when I teach um, is do what I can to create connections with students. So that's, um, that's why I talk to students as much as I can, and that's why I, uh, I, I try to make sure the resources are something that uh, are things that people are aware of in my classes, and also why um, I send that mental health check-in email to my students every term. Mm. I really appreciate you sharing that with me. Yeah. It's talking about suicide is not easy in any context, but especially yeah. if it's someone in your class. Yeah, uh, and I, I, I felt, yeah, I, I felt very um, uh, very uncomfortable about. Uh, I wouldn't say. I guess uncomfortable isn't the right word, but I certainly I, I didn't feel. Didn't feel good about what had happened, obviously. Um, so I actually reached out... Well, the, the student's mother actually reached out to the student's instructors, several of the student's instructors. I got back to the student's, uh, to the student's mom. And, uh, you know, part of it was to help address whatever questions the mother had. And, you know, understandably, the mother had a lot of questions, wanted to know what happened mm-hmm. um, and how could this have happened. Um, but in a way, it also helped me as well to deal with it because it put me on this path of trying to figure out how can we make resources more easily accessible? Mm. What What is there that I can do as a singular individual faculty member? What can I do um, to try to lower the probability of this happening again? Mm. Um, and I think that really prompted me. I was already involved in mental health uh, initiatives on campus, but I think that really hit home for me how much more work still needs to be done and um, the kinds of initiatives really showed me what kinds of initiatives are on campus that I can put more of my attention on and put more of my uh, my efforts into. Right. And you talked about attending different workshops on campus, like mm-hmm. mental health first aid mm-hmm. and suicide prevention. Yeah. Yeah. Those are... I'm 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 so thankful that those workshops exist on campus. Um, I think what ultimately happens with a lot of faculty members is that we end up being on the front lines a lot mm. in dealing with um, in helping to manage students' mental health and mental illnesses, and getting to going to QPR, going to mental health first aid going to CTLT sessions. CTLT is the Center for Teaching and Learning Technology. Um, going to CTLT sessions on, let's say, how to how to talk about difficult subjects with your students, right? And how do you manage emotions in that kind of context? I think that has really helped me in my conversations with students as much as I can. But there are th- also things I've come to learn that there are things that I, it's difficult to train people for um, and that is, I'm coming back to this issue of culture and racialization, and that is, how do you support racialization? How do you, su- I mean, how do you support racialized students? Um, and how do you support students with particular cultural backgrounds? And I find that I've, I've increasingly ended up taking on the role of, of, um, of helping to advise racialized students because oftentimes when they have their own therapist they might not be as aware of cultural dynamics or it might take a couple of sessions in and of themselves to hammer out what the cultural dynamics at work are when those therapists are not racialized 
in mm -hmm. mainstream society. And in contrast, when the students come and talk to me and we share a similar cultural background, you know, there's there's shorthands for communicating ideas. Then there's almost like this implicit these implicit associations that we can rely on. There's 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 cultural contextual cues that we can rely on, and it makes communications much easier. I've had a lot. Of, I've had several students over the years, many students over the years, talk about how you know I wouldn't have gone into so deep into psychology if it weren't for for you and for you helping me. And um, there was another student who recently was talking to me about how they had had seven or eight therapists over the course of their lives, all non-racialized uh, therapists, and none of them could really connect with the student on this cultural level to really understand the cultural dynamics underlying the students' relationships with their family. Mm -hmm. um, and what ended up happening was that student just kept coming back to my office. Mm -hmm. uh, and there would be, you know, a few months in between, but they kept coming back to my office because out of all the therapists um, that they were able to talk to over the years none of them could really connect with, with them. Mm -hmm. And so uh, they felt like they were able to connect most with me when they were sitting in my office and talking about these issues. And, and, and so while I, I do what I can to support student mental health more generally, I'm finding that I because of my own racialization, uh, because my, of my own cultural background, it's my responsibility and almost part of my professional and almost ethical obligation to particularly look out for uh, students who are um, racialized, mm -hmm. uh, especially because counselors who like racialized counselors and racialized therapists aren't nearly as common as non-racialized ones. Mm -hmm. And racialized, uh, and, and therapists who are familiar with cultural issues and who are culturally sensitive and competent to advise and, and counsel racialized clients, just not that many. So we're at the end of our episode. Thanks so much for being on it. No worries. Thanks for having me here. Of course. Would you like to have some closing remarks for this episode? Yeah, I guess the the biggest thing um, in 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 having been in the service served in this capacity for so many for several years now is that I want to encourage students to ask for help whenever they need to. It is it is so important for students to feel supported. And the best way to feel supported is to reach out for support. Because there have been, you know, there there are a lot of students will experience or will will, will perceive a lot of stigma um, or will feel like they're being weak in asking for help. But asking for help really says nothing about them being weak. The biggest concern here is whether or not the student is able to get the help that they need. And really, the sooner that the students get the help that they need, and the sooner that the students come and talk to us, the sooner and the easier it will be for those issues to be resolved. The later that it takes and the more time it takes for the students to talk and for students to come and get help, the more difficult that becomes and the more ingrained those issues become and the more time that it'll take for those issues to be worked out and in some cases the more urgent it becomes. And that's always the biggest concern is when it becomes emergent and when, when it becomes urgent. Mm so it would be i would definitely encourage students especially racialized students to 
to talk to faculty members, to talk to staff members, because resources exist on campus. And if the particular faculty member or staff member isn't equipped or isn't um, comfortable dealing with these issues, they'll at least be able to direct you to resources that are set up to handle those issues. Right. I think reaching out is a sign of courage, not weakness. I would agree with that um, because to tell stories, to tell your story Mm -hmm. is it takes so much energy and it takes so much effort. Completely reasonable why someone might not want to, but the amount of energy and the amount of um, mental capacity it takes to tell your stories in getting help, I think, is a very strong sign of courage, for sure. Mm-hmm. Great. I think that's a great way to end our episode. Thanks again for being on it. And thanks for having me here. Hey, everyone. It's Lauren from the future yet again. So Ben and I recorded this a few months ago, so I just wanted to give an update about the cultural mentorship program that he mentioned earlier. So according to Ben, they were looking into funding options, then they wanted to see if they could build onto existing systems at UBC, but then it got all hampered by COVID. So stay tuned for that. So if you like this episode, uh, please like the Facebook page. Or you can subscribe to this podcast on Spotify. Also, you can subscribe to this podcast on the Apple Podcast page as well. Thank you. That's perfect. All right, see you next week. Bye. Bye. Bye.